Section 3 of Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Thomas Kuz Kosmarski. Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 3, by Julian Hawthorne, Editor. Section number 3, The Bohemian, by Fitzjames O'Brien. Having calmly made this announcement, he folded his arms and gazed at me with the air of a god prepared to receive the ovations of his worshippers. How is this to be accomplished? I inquired earnestly, for I had begun to put implicit faith in this man, who seemed equally gifted and audacious. There are two ways by which we can arrive at our desires. The first is by the command of that power common to some namnables, who, having their faculties concentrated on a certain object, during the magnetic trance, become possessed of the power of inwardly beholding and verbally describing it, as well as the locality where it is situated. The other is peculiar to myself, and, as you have seen, consists in rendering my eyes a species of camera obscura to the clairvoyant, in which she vividly perceives all that we would desire. This mode... I have greater faith in than in any other, and I believe that our success will be found there. Well, how is that? I inquired. That you have not before put this wondrous power to a like use. Why did you not enrich yourself long since through this means? Because I have never been able to find a somnambule sufficiently impressionable to be reliable in her evidence. I have tried many, but they have all deceived me. You confess to having beheld certain shadowy forms in my eyes, but you could not define them distinctly. The reason is simply that your magnetic organization is not perfect. This faculty of mine, which has so much astonished you, is nothing new. It is employed by the Egyptians, who use a small glass mirror where I use my eyes. M. Leon Laborde, who practiced the art himself, Lord Prudhoe, and a host of other witnesses have recorded their experience of the truth of the science which I preach. However, I need discourse no further on it. I will prove to you its verity. Now that you have questioned me sufficiently, will you introduce me to your lady love, Mr. Henry Cranstown? And will you promise me, Mr. Philip Rand, on your honor as a man, that you will respect my relations with that lady? I promise upon my honor. Then I yield. When shall it be? Tonight. I hate delays. Well, this evening, then. I will meet you at the Astor House, and we will go together to Mr. Dean's house. That night, accompanied by my new friend, the Bohemian, I knocked at the door of Mr. Dean's house in Amity Place, a modest neighborhood fit for a man who earned his living by writing novels for cheap publishers and correspondence for Sunday newspapers. And he was, as usual, in his sitting room on the first floor, 
and the lamps had not yet been lighted, so that the apartment seemed filled with a dull gloom as we entered. Annie, dear, said I, as she ran to meet me, let me present to you my particular friend, Mr. Philip Rann, whom I have brought with me for a special purpose, which I will presently explain. She did not reply. Piqued by this strange silence, and feeling distressed about the bohemian, who stood calmly upright, with a faint smile on his lips, I repeated my introduction rather sharply. Annie, I reiterated, you could not have heard me. I'm anxious to introduce to you my friend, Mr. Brand. I heard you, she answered in a low voice, catching at my coat as if to support herself, but I feel very ill. Good heavens, what's the matter, darling? Let me get a glass of wine or water. Do not be alarmed, said the bohemian, arresting my meditated rush to the door. I understand Miss Dean's indisposition thoroughly. If you'll permit me, I will relieve her at once. A low murmur of assent seemed to break involuntarily from Annie's lips. Bohemian led her calmly to an armchair near the window, held her hands in his for a few moments, and spoke a few words to her in a low tone. In less than a minute, she declared herself quite recovered. "'It was you who caused my illness,' she said to him, in a tone whose vivacity contrasted strangely with her previous languor. "'I felt her presence in the room like a terrible electric shock.' "'And I have cured what I caused.' answered the bohemian you are very sensitive to magnetic impressions so much the better why so much the better she asked anxiously mr cronstone will explain replied bran carelessly and with a slight bow he moved to another part of the dusky room leaving annie and myself together who is this mr bran henry asked annie as soon as the bohemian was out of earshot his presence affects me strangely oh well, he is a strange person who possesses wonderful powers i answered he is going to be of great service to us annie indeed how so i then related to her what had passed between the bohemian and myself at my office and explained his object in coming hither this evening I painted in glowing colors the magnificent future that opened for her and myself if this scheme should prove successful, and ended by entreating her for my sake, to afford the bohemian every facility for arriving at the goal of his desires. As I finished, I discovered that Annie was trembling violently. I caught her hand in mine. It was icy cold and quivered with a sort of agitated and intermittent tremor. "'Oh, Henry!' she exclaimed. "'I feel a singular presentment that seems to warn me against this thing. Let us rest content in our poverty. Have a true heart and learn to labor and to wait. We'll be rich in time, and then we will live happily together, secure in the consciousness that our means have been acquired by honest industry. I fear those secret treasures eagings.' What's nonsense? I cried. Those are a timid girl's fears. It would be folly to pine patiently for years in poverty when we can achieve wealth at a stroke. The sooner we are rich, the sooner we shall be united. 
and to postpone that moment would be to make me almost doubt your love. Let us try this man's power. There will be nothing lost if he fails. Do with me as you will, Henry, she answered. I will obey you in all things, only I cannot help feeling a vague terror that seems to forebode misfortune. I laughed and bade her be of good cheer, and rang for lights in order that the experiment might be commenced at once. We three were alone. Mrs. Dean was on a visit at Philadelphia. Mr. Dean was occupied with his literary labors in another room, so that we had everything necessary to ensure the quiet which the Bohemian insisted should reign during his experiments. The Bohemian did not magnetize in the common way, with passes and manipulations. He sat a little in the shade, with his back to the strong glare of the chandeliers, while Annie sat opposite to him, looking full in his face. I sat at a little distance at a small table, with a pencil and notebook, with which I was preparing to register such revelations as our clairvoyant should make. The Bohemian commenced operations by engaging Miss Dean in a light and desultory conversation. He seemed conversant with all the topics of the town, and talked of the opera, and the annual exhibition at the Academy of Design, as glibly as if he had never done anything but cultivate small talk. Imperceptibly, but rapidly, however, he gradually led the conversation to money matters. From these... He glided into a dissertation on the advantages of wealth, touched on the topic of celebrated misers, then slid smoothly into a discourse on concealed treasures, about which he spoke in so eloquent and impressive a manner as to completely fascinate both his hearers. Then it was that I observed a singular change take place in Annie Dean's countenance. Hitherto pale and somewhat listless, as if suffering from mental depression, she suddenly became illumined as if by an inward fire. A rosy flush mounted to her white cheeks. Her lips eagerly parted, as if drinking in some intoxicating atmosphere were ruddy with a supernatural health, and her eyes dilated as they gazed upon the bohemian with a piercing intensity. The latter ceased to speak, and after a moment's silence, he said gently, Miss Dean, do you see? I see, she murmured, without altering the fixity of her gaze for an instant. Mark well that you observe, continued the bohemian. Describe it with all possible accuracy. Then, turning to me, he said rapidly, Take care and note everything. I see, pursued Annie, speaking in a measured monotone and gazing into the bohemian's eyes while she waved her hand gently as if keeping time to the rhythm of her words. I see a sad and mournful island on which the ocean beats forever. The sandy bridges are crowned with manes of bitter grass that wave and wave sorrowfully in the wind. No trees or shrubs are rooted in that salt and sterile soil. The burning breath of the Atlantic has seared the surface and made it always barren. The surf 
that whitens on the shore drifts like a shower of snow across its bleak and storm-blown plains. It is the home of the seagull and the crane. It is called Coney Island, the Bohemian half inquired, half asserted. It is the name, pursued the seeress, but in so even a tone that one would scarce imagine she had heard the question. She then continued to speak as before, still keeping up that gentle oscillation of her hand, which, in spite of my reason, seemed to me to have something terrible in its monotony. I see the spot, she continued, where what you love lies buried. My gaze pierces through the shifting soil until it finds the gold that burns in the gloom. And there are jewels, too, of regal size and priceless value, hidden so deeply in the barren sand. No sunlight has reached them for many years, but they burn for me as if they were set in the glory of an eternal day. Describe this spot accurately, cried the Bohemian in a commanding tone, making for the first time a supremely imperative gesture. There is a spot upon that lonely island, the seeress continued, in the unimpassioned monotone that seemed more awful than the thunder of an army, where three huge sandy ridges meet. At the junction of these three ridges, a stake of locust wood is driven deeply down. When by the sun it is six o'clock, a shadow falls westward on the sand, where this shadow ends, the treasure lies. Can you draw? asked the Bohemian. Uh, she cannot, I answered hastily. The Bohemian raised his hand to enjoin silence. I can draw now, the seeress replied firmly, never for an instant removing her eyes from the Bohemians. Will... Will you draw the locality you describe if I give you the materials? pursued the magnetizer. I will. Bran drew a sheet of Bristol board and a pencil from his pocket and presented them to her in silence. She took them and, still keeping her eyes immovably fixed on those of the magnetizer, began sketching rapidly. I was thunderstruck. Annie, I knew, had never made even the rudest sketch before. It is done, she said after a few minutes' silence, handing the Bristol board back to the Bohemian. Moved by inexpressible curiosity, I rose and looked over his shoulder. It was wonderful. There was a masterly sketch of such a locality as she described executed on the paper. But its vividness, its desolation, its evident truth were so singularly given that I could scarcely believe my senses. I could almost hear the storms of the Atlantic howling over the barren sands. There is something wanting yet, said the Bohemian, handing the sketch back to her and smiling at my amazement. I know it, she remarked calmly. Then, giving a few rapid strokes with her pencil, she handed it to him once more. The points of the compass had been added in the upper right-hand corner of the drawing. Nothing more was needed to establish the perfect accuracy of the sketch. But this is truly wonderful, 
I could not help exclaiming. It is finished, cried the Bohemian exultingly, and dashing his handkerchief two or three times across Annie's face. Under this new influence, her countenance underwent a rapid change. Her eyes, a moment before dilated to their utmost capabilities, now suddenly became dull, and the eyelids dropped heavily over them. Her form, that during the previous scene had been rigidly erect and strung to its highest point of tension, seemed to collapse like one of those strips of gold leaf that electricians experiment with when the subtle fluid has ceased to course through its pores. Without uttering a word, and before the bohemian or myself could stir, she sank like a corpse on the floor. Wretch! I cried, rushing forward. What have you done? Secure the object of our joint ambition, replied the fellow, with that imperturbable calmness that so distinguished him. Do not be alarmed at this fainting fit, my friend. Exhaustion is always the consequence of such violent psychological phenomena. Miss Dean will be perfectly recovered by tomorrow evening, and by that time we shall have returned millionaires. I will not leave her until she is recovered, I answered suddenly, while I tried to restore the dear girl to consciousness. Yes, but you will, asserted Bran, lighting his cigar as coolly as if nothing very particular had happened. By dawn tomorrow you and I will have embarked for Coney Island. You cold-blooded savage, I cried passionately. Will you assist me to restore your victim to consciousness? If you do not, by heaven, I will blow your brains out. With what, the fire shovel? he answered with a laugh. Then, carelessly approaching, he took Annie's hands in his, and blew with his mouth gently upon her forehead. The effect was almost instantaneous. Her eyes gradually unclosed, and she made a feeble effort to sustain herself. Call the housekeeper, said the bohemian. Have Miss Dean conducted to bed, and by tomorrow evening all will be tranquil. I obeyed his directions almost mechanically, little dreaming how bitterly his words would be realized. Yes, truly, all would be tranquil by tomorrow evening. I sat up all night with Bran. I did not leave Mr. Dean's until a late hour, when I saw Annie apparently wrapped in a peaceful slumber, and betook myself to a low tavern that remained open all night where the bohemian awaited me. There we arranged our plan. We were to take a boat at the battery, at the earliest glimpse of dawn, then provided with a spade and shovel, a pocket compass, and a valise in which to transport our treasure, we were to row down to our destination. I was feverish and troubled. The strange scene I had witnessed, and the singular adventure that awaited us, seemed in combination to have set my brain on fire. My temples throbbed, the cold perspiration stood upon my forehead, and it was in vain that I allowed myself to join the bohemian in the huge draughts of brandy which he continually gulped down, and which seemed to produce little or no effect on his iron frame. How madly, how terribly I longed for the dawn. At last the hour came. We took our implements in a carriage down to the battery, hired a boat, and in a short time we were out in the stream pulling lustily down the foggy harbor. 
The exercise of rowing seemed to afford me some relief. I pulled madly at my oar until the sweat rolled in huge drops from my brow and hung in trembling beads on the curls of my hair. After a long and wearisome pull, we landed on the island at the most secluded spot we could find, taking particular care that it was completely sheltered from the view of the solitary hotel where doubtless inquisitive idlers would be found. After beaching our boat carefully, we struck toward the center of the island, Bran seeming to possess some wonderful instinct for the discovery of localities, for almost without any trouble he walked nearly straight to the spot we were in search of. This is the place, said he, dropping the valise which he carried. Here are the three ridges and the locust stake lying exactly due north. Let us see what the true time is. So saying, he unlocked the valise and drew forth a small sextant, with which he proceeded to take an observation. I could not help admiring the genius of this man, who seemed to think of and foresee everything. After a few moments, engaged in making calculations on the back of a letter, he informed me that exactly twenty-one minutes would elapse before the shadow of the locust stake would fall on the precise spot indicated by the cirrus. Just time enough, said he, to enjoy a cigar. Never did twenty-one minutes appear so long to a human, being as these did to me. There was nothing in the landscape to arrest my attention. All was a wild waste of sand, on which a few patches of salt grass waved mournfully. My heart beat until I could hear its pulsations. It thousand times I thought that my strength must give way beneath the weight of my emotions, and that death would overtake me ere I realized my dreams. I was obliged at length to dip my handkerchief in a marshy pool that was near me, and bind it about my burning temples. At length the shadow from the locust log fell upon the enchanted spot. Bran and myself seized the spades wildly, and dug with the fury of ghouls who were rooting up their loathsome repast. The light sand flew in heaps on all sides. The sweat rolled from our bodies. The hole grew deeper and deeper. At last, oh heavens, a metallic sound. My spade struck some hollow, sonorous substance. My limbs fairly shook as I flung myself into the pit and scraped the sand away with my nails. I laughed like a madman and burrowed like a mole. The bohemian, always calm, with a few strokes of his shovel, laid bare an old iron pot with a loose lid. In an instant, this was smashed with a frantic blow of my fist, and my hands were buried in a heap of shining gold. Red, glittering coins, bracelets that seemed to glow like the stars in heaven, goblets, rings, jewels, in countless profusion, flashed before my eyes for an instant like the sparkles of an aurora. Then came a sudden darkness, and I remember no more. How long I lay in this unconscious state, I know not. It seemed to me that I was aroused by a sensation similar to that of having water poured upon me, and it was some moments before I could summon up sufficient strength to raise myself on one elbow. I looked bewilderingly around. I was alone. 
I then strove to remember something that I seemed to have forgotten. When my eye fell on the hole in the sand, on the edge of which I found I was lying, a dull red gleam as of gold seemed to glimmer from out the bottom. This talismanic sight restored to me everything, my memory and my strength. I sprang to my feet. I gazed around. Bohemian was nowhere visible. Had he fled with the treasure? My heart failed for a moment at the thought. But no, there lay the treasure gleaming still in the depths of the hole, with a dull red light like the distant glare of hell. I looked at the sun. He had sunk low in the horizon, and the dews already falling had, with the damp sea air, chilled me to the bone. While I was brushing the moisture from my coat, wondering at the strange conduct of the bohemian, my eye caught sight of a slip of paper pinned upon my sleeve. I tore it off eagerly. It contained these words. I leave you. I am honest, though I am selfish, and have divided with you the treasure which you have helped me to gain. You are now rich, but it may be that you will not be happy. Return to the city, but return in doubt. The Bohemian. What terrible enigma was this that the last sentence of this note enshrouded? What veiled mystery was it that rose before my inward vision in shapeless horror? I knew not. I could not guess, but a foreboding of some unknown and overwhelming disaster rushed instantly upon me and seemed to crush my soul. Was it Annie, or was it my father? One thing was certain. There was no time to be lost in penetrating the riddle. I seized the valise which the Bohemian had charitably left me. How he bore away his own share of the treasure I know not, and poured the gold and jewels into it with trembling hands. Then, scarce able to travel with the weight of the treasure, I staggered toward the beach where he had left the boat. She was gone without wasting an instant. I made my way as rapidly as I could to the distant pier, where a thin stream of white smoke informed me that the steamer for New York was waiting for the bathers. I reached her just as she was about to start, and staggering to an obscure corner, sorrowfully sat down upon my treasure. With what different feelings from those which I anticipated was I returning to the city, my dreams of wealth had been realized beyond my wildest hopes. All that I had thought necessary to yield me the purest happiness was mine. And yet, there was not a more miserable wretch in existence. Those fatal words, return to the city, but return in doubt, were ever before me. Oh, how I counted every stroke of the engine that impelled me to the city. There was a poor, blind, hump-backed fiddler on board, who played all along the way. He played execrably, and his music made my flesh creep. As we neared the city, he came round with his hat, soliciting alms. In my recklessness, I tumbled all the money I had in my pockets into his hands. I never shall forget the look of joy that flashed over his poor old seared and sightless face at the touch of the, these few dollars. Good heavens, I groaned. Here I am, 
sitting on the wealth of a kingdom, which is all mine, and dying of despair, while this old wretch has extracted from five dollars enough happiness to make a saint envious. Then my thoughts wandered back to Annie and the Bohemian, and there always floated before me in the air the agonizing words, Return to the city, but return in doubt. The instant I reached the pier, I dashed through the crowd with my valise and jumped into the first carriage I met, promised a liberal bounty to the driver if he would drive me to Amity Place in the shortest possible space of time. Stimulated by this, we flew through the streets, and in a few moments I was standing at Mr. Dean's door. Even then, it seemed to me as if a dark cloud hung over the, that house above all others in the city. I rang, but my hand had scarcely left the bell handle when the door opened, and Dr. Lott, the family physician, appeared on the threshold. He looked grave and sad. We were expecting you, Mr. Cranston, he said very mournfully. Has, has anything happened? I stammered, catching at the railings for support. Hush, come in. And the kind doctor took me by the arm and led me like a child into the parlor. Doctor, for heaven's sake, tell me, what is the matter? Oh, I know something has happened. Is Annie dead? Oh, my brain will burst unless you end this suspense. No, not dead. But tell me, Mr. Cranstown, has Miss Dean experienced any uncommon excitement lately? Yes, yes, last night. I groaned wildly. She was mesmerized by a wretch. Oh, fool that I was to suffer it. Ah, that explains all, answered the doctor. Then he took my hand gently in his. Prepare yourself, Mr. Cranstown, he continued, with deep pity in his voice. Prepare yourself for a terrible shock. Oh, she is dead then, I murmured. Is she not? She is. She died this morning of overexcitement, of the cause of which I was ignorant until now. Calm yourself, my dear sir. She died blessing you. I tore myself from his grasp and rushed upstairs. The door of her room was open, and in spite of myself, my agitated tramp softened to a stealthy footfall as I entered. There were two figures in the room. One was an old man who knelt by the bedside of my lost love, sobbing bitterly. It was her father. The other lay upon the bed with marble face, crossed hands, and sealed eyelids. All was tranquil and serene in the chamber of death. Even the sobbings of the father, though bitter, were muffled and subdued, and she lay on the couch with closed eyes, the calmest of all. Oh, the seeress now saw more than earthly science could show her. I felt, as I knelt by her father and kissed her cold hand in the agony of my heart, that I was justly punished. Below stairs, in the valise, lay the treasure I had gained. Here, in her grave clothes, lay the treasure I had lost. End of section three. Recording by John Thomas Kuzkowski. JTK.